I am Plant on the Line in Vancouver, British Columbia at thecommentary.ca. Rick Mercer joins me now. The beloved comedian has just published a memoir, Talking to Canadians. After 15 seasons on television, he hit the stage as a stand-up comedian making appearances across the country. However, once COVID-19 struck, he spent his time writing this book. He mines his memory for stories about his childhood in Newfoundland and his less than stellar career as a student. He then found purpose on stage, first behind the scenes, then performing, performing comedy in a troupe, to performing on stage in a satirical one-man show, Show Me the Button, I'll Push It or Charles Lynch Must Die, which made him a national sensation. He reflects on his years in comedy, then his work on television at the CBC, co-creating This Hour Has 22 Minutes. He provides marvelous insight into the creation of that landmark series, as well as stories about his fellow performers. We follow his career as he leaves to create and star in Made in Canada, as well as his own show, which would become the Rick Mercer Report. He also talks about his personal life, like his regret at not finishing school, to his personal and professional relationship with partner Gerald Lunds. Visit rickmercer.com for more. This new book is published by Doubleday. Please welcome to the Plant Online program, Rick Mercer. Mr. Mercer, good morning. Hello, how are you? Pretty how good. Are you? Pretty good yourself. I'm excellent. Um, you, you've been talking about this book quite a bit the last few days. Um, when does the, the tour, if you will, when does that finish, say? Uh, well, I guess in these kind of weird pandemic times, it's not really a tour. Once upon a time, sure, you would yeah. know, for example, that you were going to start on the 1st and go to the 14th or something, mm-hmm. and you would have it all laid out. But, of course, it's, uh, it's very different now. It's a different animal. I'll probably continue till Christmas, really, in some shape or form. And uh, I don't mind talking, and I don't mind talking about the book, so I think that's what I'll be doing. There's a great moment in the book where, where um, uh, as a kid, you, you, you're, you're running for student council. You're not necessarily interested in governing, say, or, or, or doing the administrative work that, that one has to do in, in that job. But, but you, you had to give a speech in front of the, the, the student body, if you will. And you just loved it. You got quite a charge out of it. Was that the first time that you, you, you thought seriously that you'd like to perform, say? Well, also in the book, there's a story about when I get pulled up on a stage during a kid's show at mm-hmm. school in grade three and how exhilarating that was. But certainly when you do something like that in grade three, you don't think that, oh, this is something that you could actually do for a living. And in high school, I don't know why I was drawn to running for student council. Like I said, I had no interest in planning a dance or anything. <laughs> but instead of a speech, there was a speak off, and you could talk for two or three minutes on any subject. So all the kids kind of spoke about really dire, serious things, the hole in the ozone, you know, mm-hmm. the impending nuclear war, we're all going to die, that kind of stuff. And I went another way, and I got lots of laughs, and it was pretty exciting. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a terrible thing that happens to a person when they get up on stage and they get those first laughs. You kind of start wondering uh, how you start jonesing for the laugh. And so I, that's probably the first time I, I did consider it. But there was, no, there was no tradition of stand-up comedy in Newfoundland, so mm-hmm. the idea that you could make a living standing up and being funny was completely absurd. But there was sketch comedy, which is what I ended up doing. And is sketch comedy, um, uh, it obviously has to connect with an audience to work. Um, but, but, but the book is called Talking to Canadians, which you've done throughout your career. Um, do you think the comedy informed, say, an ability to connect to audiences as you have? Well, I guess the way I connected to audiences obviously changed over the years. But 
you know, I did have a comedy troupe in the early days, and we were young and naive, and we were real. I think we were pretty funny. There was certainly some funny stuff, and, and the other three comedians in the show uh, that I worked with are very funny people. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was kind of straight up comedy sketches, and like I say, we were pretty arrogant. We thought, okay, we'll do comedy sketches in Newfoundland, and then we'll move to Toronto, and then we'll get a TV show like Kids in the Hall and Codco. Yeah. I guess that's that's how it works. That didn't happen, but I started doing one-man shows, and that very much is talking directly to the audience. There's no fourth wall. You know, there's not two people at a water cooler doing a sketch. You're looking directly at the audience and delivering it straight down the pike. And so that's why I went with the title, Talking to Canadians, because, yeah, that's essentially what I've been doing ever since. And, and on television, I was always more comfortable looking directly into the camera lens whether it was during a rant or sitting at a news desk, I always felt more comfortable doing that than inside of a sketch or anything else. Did, did your perspective looking into the camera change over the years? I mean, um, uh, I'm, I'm wondering, when you're looking into a camera, are you, are you talking to one person? I mean, you, you know what the ratings were week after week, so, I mean, you knew you were talking to a lot of people at one point. Did, did that change at all, how, how you conducted yourself or comported yourself, say? I don't think so, but, you know, shows evolve as time goes on and individuals' acts evolve as time goes on. I mean, you know, when I started, I was an angry young man. There was no doubt about it. The first one, that show, was a very angry show. And then the second one was kind of angry, but my heart wasn't quite as into it as the first time around. But I kind of thought, well, this is what I am now, an angry young man. But then I realized, well, I don't have to remain angry just for the sake of being angry, and that anger kind of began to dissipate. But acts always change. You know, when we started the Mercer Report, for example, uh, one thing we never expected to happen was that we became a family show. Mm. Uh, We just didn't expect that to happen. We we knew that, you know, young people would hopefully like us and people would watch us, but I never thought eight-year-olds would be watching us. But very quickly, Canadians wanted to imprint Canada on their kids, I think, by having them watch the show, and it was one of those rare shows. I mean, when I was a kid, there were all sorts of shows that families watched together, but I think the Mercer Report was like the last one. And once I realized that that was happening, we changed the show to accommodate that because, and I can remember the day it happened. I was in Regina, and I, you know, made a silly joke. I said, welcome to Regina, the town that rhymes with fun. (laughs) <laughs> and we got these emails from people going, oh, come on, Rick, I was watching with my, you know, seven-year-old, and he got that joke, and now he just keeps running around the house going, where's mommy's vagina, you know? <laughs> and then I was like, why were you watching with your seven-year-old? We're not, a, we're not a kid's show, that's your own fault. And then I thought, oh, maybe we are. So then we changed, and we, we mm. intentionally, uh, we never put anything in the show that would embarrass parents in front of the kids or worse kids in front of the parents. And... I never thought in a million years I'd be on a show like that, but that was a change that I made intentionally. Yeah, and and what was it like to know that it worked? Well, that, you know what? It was really exciting, and it was really exciting knowing that I could, during the Mercer Report, we would sometimes shoot at universities, and we always liked to get crowd shots, and we would just put it out on social media or what have you, or yeah. you know, they would promote it through their council, and we get a thousand students out. There's nothing more exciting than knowing you can get a thousand university students out at a at a uh, uh, you know on a college campus, sure. especially if you're on the public broadcaster. But then at the same time, 
the vast majority of my mail were from was from little kids doing school projects and 65 year olds so it felt great because yeah. I felt like everyone was watching yeah, talking about school uh, th that's one of the real regrets that you have in your life and you write about this in the book that, that not finishing school is something that, that you regret and um, you're, you're urging kids especially in this country where, where you know it is available for for a lot of us, most of us, um, that they should finish school. Was the call of the stage, was that more appealing than school, or were you just unfocused? What, what well, happened? No, the, 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 the call of the stage saved me because mm. uh, if it wasn't for that, I, honestly, I don't know what I would be doing. I mean, I would be, uh, I can't imagine what I'd be doing because there certainly was a true failure at my scholastic career. And why it's such a regret is, is if, if I had any reason in the world, if I had a difficult upbringing, if I was being going to school hungry in the morning, if I had a, uh, if I was differently abled, mm -hmm. uh, then I would have an excuse. Not to, maybe excuse is the wrong word, but sure, I, sure. I, there was no reason, and I don't know what it is. Some, someone just recently read my book and said, "Oh, you're classic ADHD," but I really don't believe that. I really don't. Um, but it just that nothing seemed to capture my imagination. And for the life of me, I just couldn't do school like when I was a kid. And then once I discovered creative endeavors in like grade 11 or, you know, when, when we created our own newspaper, yeah. I worked so hard on that newspaper. I worked harder than anyone worked on anything. And the same with the plays. Once we started writing and producing plays, I worked harder than anyone. And I believe in my life that, while I was never, I wasn't always the funniest guy in the room or the best actor or the best writer, no one worked as hard as I did. Like, I, I worked hard. And I find it really weird that I didn't figure that out in grade 8 and 9 and 10 and 11, that if I just worked a little bit, I would have gone through school probably, you know, easy peasy. But yeah. instead, there was just a, nothing was ever done. So you're in a constant state of, low-level anxiety because you never have any homework or assignment done. And not that I really care, but you'd have to go through that awkward conversation where they're going, what do you mean you don't have your assignment done? Or why weren't you in class for three days this week? Um, so you're constantly treading water, and you're behind the eight ball. And you know what? Since grade 11, and I started doing those plays in my professional life, yeah. I am very rarely treading water or behind the eight ball. I, you know, I know that you have to be prepared and you got to do the work. Why I didn't figure that out when I was a kid, I have no idea. You know, when you're on this book tour, Rick, and people are asking you what's next, is finishing school something you're thinking about? Well, you know, when I left the Mercer Report, uh -huh. <laughs> I said, uh, I said, I don't know what I'm going to do next. And my mother said, you can always go get your math. So I, guess <laughs> I guess it's never been far from her mind. Um, also, I, I, you know, one of the most inspiring individuals in my life, my father, uh -huh. uh, after he retired, he returned to university and finished his university degree that uh, was, you know, unfortunately put on hold when, uh, you know, he started having children and uh -huh. he had to go to work for a living. But at 65, he went back to university and got a political science degree. So I have at least until then. Yeah. Yeah, well, there you go. Yeah, I, I turn 40 next year, and I, I've been thinking about finishing university, which, which I never did. And I thought, yeah, well, maybe, maybe and I if, didn't, you know. 
Well, then, and you should, you know, I, I didn't realize that it was, you know, my parents are pretty great, and uh, my father was never the type of person to ever talk about regrets or anything. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, when he announced he was going back to university, I was like, what do you mean you're going back to university? You're a, you're a retired man. <laughs> and he just said, you know, I always regretted that I didn't finish. And I always, you know, wondered how things would have been differently professionally uh-huh. uh, had I had that degree. And so he went and got it. Fantastic. You mentioned your father, and, and uh, there's a great story in the book. There are a number of great stories about him in the book. But the, the one that I was thinking about as, as you were talking um, just now was um, when talking to Americans, uh, when, when I guess it was first a segment on, on this hour's 22 Minutes uh, debuted, he didn't like it, did he? No. Not only that, my father... Uh, never, ever commented on anything I ever did. Mm. I mean, he was always proud of me, I sure. think, and just like 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 all his kids, proud that I was working, you know. Um, but he never commented. Uh, and then he, one day he said, uh, you know, I saw that talking to Americans thing, and the neighbors came over and said they liked it, and so-and-so called and said that was funny. And I said, oh, Dad, you wouldn't believe it. I I don't think I've ever done anything like this. The reaction is yeah. insane. Everyone's talking about it. He said, promise me you'll never do that again. Uh, he thought it was just terrible, yeah. terrible. And the joke in our family among the kids is, you know, our cross to bear is that we're his child because he's so good. It's like, <laughs> it's yeah. like being raised by Gandhi. Sure. So, of course, he would say, don't do that again. But, of course, you know, I, I continued doing it for many years. But uh, that's because he's a better man than I am. But. But, yeah, he didn't like it out of the gate. So did he think that it was punching down? He, I think he just thought I was taking advantage of people mm-hmm. in some way. And, uh, you know, he thought that the – yeah, he's just, just that nice a guy. He's just super, super good. Yeah. Yeah. It – because that was a huge hit. I mean um, – the special was what two two and a half more than two and a half million people two, watching two point seven million viewers, yeah. which was I didn't even know numbers went that high at the time in, for in, comedy in Canada. You yeah, know, yeah, that was like that was Stanley Cup playoff numbers. It was yeah. uh, it was completely unexpected. Do you think it created a stereotype um, that that Canadians w- would come to have about Americans, or did we always have that say, say, sort of view about them? I think it confirmed our but also shocked and appalled us that uh, it was it was as bad as it was. You know, it's one thing to say, oh, they think we all live in, you know, in igloos. Well, you can understand why they might think that. They keep hearing about the cold weather front, and, you know, they might be familiar with, you know, a couple of movies that take place in Canada and say ice. That's one thing, if they think we're, we're north, so we're all covered in ice. But the fact that they believe that we, you know, only legalized insulin in 1995 <laughs> or, that, or that, you know, we had 100 miles of paved road or that we were landlocked, so we needed to use American ports to have a Navy. Like, it just went on and on. There was no end to what they would believe. And so that's, I guess, why the joke kept working. Like, yeah. I actually thought when we did it the first time and it was, it knocked it out of the park and they said, go back. I actually thought, well, if we go back, I bet, you know, it might just land flat because people will say, well, you just did that last week. What are you doing it again? Yeah. But yeah. as long as I kept upping the ante and being, and the reaction was more and more incredulous, it worked. 
Yeah, it's one thing to do it, say, in Little Rock, but then when you when you went to Harvard. Um, well, that's exactly why I went to Harvard, yeah, because it, it, we started in Washington, then we went to Little Rock, and people started saying things like, oh, he's picking on Southerners. Right, and, right. you know, oh, he's picking on people that, that aren't educated. He's finding them, you know, he can spot them. So that's why we thought, oh, no, let's go right to, right to the to the, the, the ivyest of the Ivy Leagues. Yeah. So um, you talk about uh, your partner, Gerald Lunds, um, and, and his role in your career. Um, he's always been there, but, but I guess the first time you met, was that working on a, on a Kathy Jones show and he wanted to fire you? Yeah, he wanted to fire me because I was working backstage, and uh -huh. Kathy hired me to work backstage. And... Uh, Gerald's job was to get the show up and running and then drag it across the country. And it was, it was designed to be a very affordable show, and it was designed to use different technicians in every city, uh, but they had to be well-trained technicians. Kathy hired me because she thought it was funny, and Gerald had to rehearse the show with me. And so he was like, you don't hire us. Them because they're funny. He needs to operate the. He needs to know how to operate yeah. the projector. He needs to know how to swap out the audio. He needs to know, you know, operate the follow spot. He needs to know all these things. He needs to know how to fix the projector if it breaks. I didn't know any of those things. And then I was just lazy. Every time he turned around, he said I'd be like sitting in the, you know, in the wings talking to Kathy, trying to make her laugh. And it's like, <laughs> who is this guy? And he he begged Kathy, fire this kid, and. Uh, <laughs> He wouldn't do it, so he was stuck with me, and we got along, but he just thought I was ridiculous. Uh, and then a couple of years later, he came back to town, and I had a comedy troupe then. I was no longer working backstage, and we were, we were, we were kind of a going concern. We were like, uh, you know, like the, the way that all towns have like hot rock and roll bands. Mm -hmm. We were like that, except in comedy. We were playing bars, and we could always sell out, and we were causing a bit of a sensation, I guess, and, and he came to a bunch of our shows and liked them. And uh, eventually, we started seeing each other, secretly at first, yeah. but we started seeing each other. And then he had this opportunity to bring a one-person show to Ottawa as a director and producer. And he didn't ask me because we, we just started seeing each other. We just thought that was a bad idea. So he asked two or three people, and everyone kind of thought there wasn't enough time. It was like six weeks. And one night, I was ranting about... Brian Mulrooney, as I was wanting to do. And he said, well, why don't you come to Ottawa and say all those things, but say it in their faces. Uh, but we only have six weeks, and I didn't know what that meant. So I said, yeah, sure, I'll do it. Yeah. Because sometimes when you're young, your greatest advantage, the thing you have going for you, is that you don't know any better. So I, I didn't realize that wasn't enough time. I said, yeah, let's go. And that show became a, a pretty significant show for a bunch of different reasons. And it, it launched me nationally, and I ended up touring that show and performing it right across the country. And it introduced me to the theater community. And it introduced me to uh, the CBC, mm -hmm. uh, and it led to television interest. And then eventually, it got me in the room when 22 Minutes was being created. Yeah, we'll talk about that in a sec. But the the, the relationship with you and Gerald, the, the the personal and the professional, it it uh, as I read it, it goes it's pr pr pretty parallel, was it? Yeah, because when we started working together on that one-man show, uh, he, he produced everything of any consequence I ever did after that. I, he, and not because he's my partner, but mm -hmm. because in my belief, he's the best comedy producer in the country. So I've been lucky to uh, be in a relationship with him so I could get him. 
so he was the you know the executive producer and showrunner of the Mercer Report, and he was the executive producer and showrunner of Made in Canada. Mm-hmm. Uh, he produced Talking to Americans, of course, and uh, and he was the creative producer of Twenty Two Minutes. So like he's always been there, and until recently, if I was ever hosting a Junos or uh, you know Canada Today on Parliament Hill or whatever, he's the guy in the wings, yeah. and uh, he's edited everything I've ever done. I always find him. You know, he improves my jokes without getting any credit, so it's a pretty good deal. Yeah, and and, and he had uh, the laser focus, as you write in the book, of, of targeting the CBC after the after the success at the National Arts Center uh, with with your with your one man show. Um, did he see things for you that that you probably couldn't see in in terms of your career? Say, oh, I think so, probably. Um, you know, he he was. Well, the big thing was, I was going to call this book Name Above the Title, mm-hmm. but I thought that that would sound too egotistical. But the big thing that Gerald did was when we did that first show, and I named it Show Me the Button, I'll Push It, or Charles Lynch Must Die. Mm-hmm. When Gerald submitted the name, it was Rick Mercer's Show Me the Button, I'll Push It, or Charles Lynch Must Die. And the National Arts Center had a policy. They never put any person's name above the title. Didn't care who, they didn't care who it was. Yeah. William Shatner. Didn't matter. No one's name goes above the title. And so Gerald said, well, that's the actual name of the show. And and the film, this sounds this guy who's running the National Arts Center, made an exception for us. So my name went above the title, and Gerald's belief was, and I never would have thought about that, was that if you're going to make a living in this country, you have to build a brand. Mm. And you can't build a brand unless people know who you are. So he said, whatever you do, you get your name above that title. So it's the first thing people see. And, you know, it may seem like a simple thing, but it's actually quite radical. Even today, even today, you will pick up the Toronto Star and you will see the ad every year for all the plays that are happening at the Shaw Festival, mm-hmm. which is one of the biggest theater festivals in North America, and you will not see an actor's name on the poster. When you go to New York, the actor's names are all over the marquee. Mm. Yeah. Uh, except in Canada, there's always been a reluctance. Like, don't put their name on the poster. People are coming to see a streetcar named Desire, not the fact that this person is in it. And uh, so it was. Uh, it was. Uh, it was something we fought for for a long, long time. Yeah, um, and that was certainly something he mm-hmm. was aware of that I wasn't aware of. Yeah, and and um, in terms of the the uh, the uh, success over the years. Um, you credit him with with a lot of it. Um, how does he feel about uh, uh, his part in all of this? I mean, you, you mentioned him in the book, but I, I don't. I don't. I, I guess I wanted to know more about him in terms of of what it was like being there along for the ride. If well, you, I, you know, the one thing about him is he, you know, he says never look behind the curtain. Like he's not some. I mean, I'm a very private person. He's an extremely private person. Uh-huh. Um, so. It was odd for me to write about write this book anyway because it's a memoir. Sure. Um, but it was odd to write about us, I guess, to a certain extent. But um, yeah, he's just a private person, and I don't know. Like, if we were a creative partnership, which is the way I view it, if we were a creative partnership uh, and we didn't live together, um, I don't know if he would view it differently. I don't know if I would view it differently. Um, but you know, it's almost like you know, uh, you know, Elton John and. What's his name? Bernie Taupin? Taupin? What's his name? Taupin. I mean, that's a a creative partnership that's kind of unique. Um, They rely on each other. 
you know, one uh, is, uh, uh, you know, out in front, and one uh, could, you know, couldn't be picked out of a lineup uh, anywhere, and uh, it's almost like that. Mm-hmm. Um, your career is uniquely Canadian. Um, it seems like it couldn't have happened anywhere else, but, but um, you know, as I was reading the book, you could have easily gone elsewhere and done well, perhaps made more money. What kept you in Canada all these years? It's funny, you know, I never considered going, and it was only when I was doing an interview about this book that someone said, and you, you know, you never went to the States. And I said, no, well, I could have went and hosted that talk show, that yeah. game show. Yeah. And they said, what game show? And I said, oh, I was, you know, they offered me the, the weakest link. Mm. It was a big show at the time. Yeah. And the person said, you were offered the weakest link and you didn't put it in the book? <laughs> Honestly, it never crossed <laughs> my mind. I hadn't thought of it in years until it just happened to come out. Um, no, I never went to the States, but I, I, I have to say this. I don't, you know, I certainly do not begrudge anyone mm. who uh, goes to the States. It's the largest English language market in, in the, you know, in the world. And if you're a comedian or a writer or a playwright or an actor or whatever, I mean, a songwriter makes perfect sense you would go there. And for many, many people, they have no choice but to go there. Um, and it's no different than, you know, when you talk to me as a cocky 18, 19-year-old, I would have assured you there was not a hope in hell that I was ever going to sell out and go to the mainland and live in Toronto mm-hmm. in order to have a show business career. We were, we were going to build an industry in Newfoundland that was to the extent that we could make a living in Newfoundland. And, of course, I left home. So I might have gone to the States, but I certainly left home. Yeah. And you know, went to Halifax and then Toronto, where I still live to this day. So I, I get it, people go to the States, and, and more power to them. Uh, you know, more and more, there are people who don't because they don't have to. Like, there's all sorts of people, you know, especially the SCTV era, yeah. that, um, that you know, had tremendous careers in the States. But, you know, when they went, part of the motivation was they didn't think they there was any other opportunities in Canada. And at the time, there, were, there wasn't, you know, they had to feed their families, so yeah. they went. Yeah, do you uh, take any credit for, for, for the, say, the development of, say, an industry in this country? No, no. Um, you know, I, I think uh, I've, you know, contributed to certain areas, but I'm not an industry builder in that way. You know, there's, there's people in Newfoundland, for example, that I've watched over the last 20 years, like, you know, like work, like, Torbay ponies to build the TV and a film industry there, and, and now there's, you know, Netflix shows being shot there, and they're like they're real, true industry builders, right? Um, you know, I think maybe I showed that you could create, you know, popular comedy shows that were about current events, and you know, some of those things. But uh, I, I wouldn't consider myself an industry builder in that way. There's a great, another great moment in the book where where you talk about where you were the night that Kotko debuted on the CBC, yeah. and then later on in the book, um, Mark Critch, I guess, tells you. Uh, where he was the night that uh, this hour's 22 minutes debuted. And, um, I mean, there's a great parallel there in terms of, of um, you know, I, I guess well, when Kodko debuted, what, what did you think in your mind, that, that this was something you could do too? Well, for starters, when Kodko debuted, this was something I wasn't going to miss mm. for, you know, all the money in the world. And so I quickly tell the story in the book. You know, I'm visiting friends in Montreal. It's a big deal. I've never really been on the mainland. I've never been to Montreal. And uh, I walk through the door. Say Codco's coming on at 8 o'clock. I walk through at like 7.30. And the door's wide open. The windows are open. My friends are in there that I haven't seen in months. 
and uh, they're hysterical. Someone has robbed them. Mm. And, you know, their their purses are dumped out, and the place is kind of banged up. And, you know, that's such a terrible thing to have happen to these people. And they're like, oh, this is stolen, and that's just stolen, and that they took this. And I looked, and I said, they've taken your television. <laughs> and they said, we don't have a television. I said, but COD goes on tonight. And, you know, how yeah. insensitive. That's what I said to them. <laughs> yeah. And they were like, we don't care. <laughs> what are you talking about? We've been robbed. And I just left, and I ran to the bus station because I remembered when I arrived, there were these weird ergodynamic kind of, uh, or, you know, whatever. They were like these weird molded chairs with built-in TVs, and you could put a quarter in and watch television for five minutes. Yeah. And, uh that's where I watched the Codco premiere because there was no way I was going to miss it. It was that important to me. And I thought they were the luckiest people on earth. I mean, yeah. you know, they, they had, they were going to make a living doing comedy sketches about Newfoundland on the national network. Uh, it was just, it was just like, it was, it was amazing. Yeah. Just amazing. Yeah. And so Critch had the same feeling, um, when, when 22 minutes started, right? Yeah, I would think so, because, you know, Critch was, uh, uh, you know, he's just a couple of years behind me in in age. So, you know, I had a comedy troupe that was, like, established, and we were, you know, selling out all the bars and stuff, and then Critch's comedy troupe came along, and, uh, you know, and they they were the, suddenly, the you know, the, the people that were nipping at our heels, and they had a whole other kind of approach and a whole other fan base because they were a couple of years younger, and... Uh, and so, yeah, I would think he was probably like when 22 launched, he you know would have liked to have been there. He just wasn't at that point in his career yet. And uh, in fact, when I was doing 22 in those early weeks, his comedy troupe came through town and was playing the Fringe Festival, and they all like crashed into my apartment. Um, and then eventually, he got work after I left 22 Minutes as a writer on the show. Mm. And he's got a great story because I talk about luck. A yeah. lot in the in the show in the book, and you know his story was well, not mine to tell. But you know Colin Mockery was on Twenty Two Minutes at the time. Colin's a big star, but he was flying back and forth, yeah. and he got stuck in a snowstorm. And so they just looked at Critch and said, "Well, you read the jokes on the desk," because he was in the writers' room, and you know he knocked it out of the park. Yeah. And uh, you know now the show is his. You uh, slipped a moment ago and, and called uh, the, the book a show. Could, could this be oh. done on the stage, say? Uh, I don't know. Uh, you know, it's been a long time since I thought of returning to the stage in a one-man show format. Like, mm-hmm. you know, what I started working on about four years ago was being on stage as a stand-up, which is something I never did. Uh, so, yeah, I guess it could. You know, certainly people have done memoir stage shows before. I would only do it if I was assured that it was, uh, you know, a rocking, funny 90 minutes. Right, yeah. And, and as I, I mentioned earlier, everybody asks you what, what's next. Um, this book takes us um, to, to the, the point where you, you leave 22 minutes and are about to start um, Rick Mercer's Monday report, um, this time name above the title. Um, is, is there a volume two of this this book, say? Uh, <clears throat> I don't know. I mean, it wouldn't be, wouldn't be quick right away anyway and uh you know i was really grateful to have this this book and this project to work on during the pandemic but uh i was also glad when the project came to an end because it's you know i I hate to complain about work because you know work is good but you know it's a hard old slog so i'm not eager to 
go back to that right away. And there's a whole bunch of things I'd like to do. And for the first time, <clears throat> I don't have to do, you know, if I think of a TV project, in the old days, you would think, and normally when you're a younger person, you think, okay, I'll, I'll do this TV show or this TV project, but uh, I'll only do it if it can turn into a series that can hopefully run for a couple of years. Mm. You know, you're always thinking of how you can spin it into another direction. And if you're going to do a special, it's got to be something that could be expanded to a series. Whereas now I could do a special that could just be a one-off, or I could do a six-episode show. But then again, what the heck is TV now anyway? I mean, mm. you know, when I was Every TV show I created, a big part of it was that we want to be in prime time and we we'll want, want to be at 8 o'clock. Well, that doesn't even mean anything anymore. Right? You know, people don't even know what that means. Like, they stream everything and yeah. they, they save everything. So, who knows what's next? Could be a podcast. Who knows? Do you, do you get offers for, for dramatic parts, eh? No. You know, in the book, I talk about, you know, I, when I was a, a Young again, I, I, I got parts and movies and stuff. And then when I started becoming, I don't want to start referring to myself in the second person like I'm the queen or something, but when I started becoming Rick Mercer, yeah. the TV personality, the like brand. the first time I saw that, yeah. here he is, TV personality, um, that's when that stuff went away. And I can totally understand because they're going to cast you as a, you know, if you know, Street League was still on, they're like, and then you enter as the, the new crown prosecutor, people will just go, Oh, no, that's Rick Mercer. He's not a crown prosecutor. That's not the geography teacher. So th that went away. You know, uh, uh, I, I, I got to do some fun roles in uh, Quebec films because uh, I don't think the Quebec directors kind of cared about that or viewed me as, like, a, a personality because they probably didn't watch English television. It, it, it seems like um, so, so you're at a point in your life where, where you can do anything you want. Um, but you're you're obviously going to be you know th thinking about what 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 the next thing will be. Uh, is there anything that that you haven't done professionally that you'd like to do, say? Well, sure. There's a lot. You know, there's there's still the theater. You know, uh, I spent a lot of time acting in plays once upon a time. And even though I'm not one of those people who left the theater and went into television and always whines and complains and pines for being back on the boards, I always wanted to be on TV. Uh, I would love to go back and do some theater. You know, the only thing stopping me over the years when I've been offered theater is it's so much bloody work. I mean, mm -hmm. eight shows a week is a yeah. nightmare. Uh, so so uh, it's a lot harder than TV, I can tell you. So um, that's something that's really intriguing. And, uh, yeah, there's lots of different things that I might like to do. Or also uh, there could be things that really have nothing to do with show business. And, and that's, one of the unique things about show business is sometimes, you know, people say, whatever happened to this actor? Yeah. They go, oh, well, you know, he lives in Wyoming now and has a firm and is raising a family. And people are like, no, no, you don't, you don't, no. And, like, no one believes that sometimes people leave show business and do something else. Yeah. You know, like it's some sort of an admission of failure, like some, you know, Corey Hart stopped recording. I mean, all he did was make huge albums, and he went to the Bahamas with you know, produced huge albums. So people are always like, what happened to Corey Hart? Well, he, he changed. He didn't want to be Corey Hart anymore. He wanted yeah. to do something else. Yeah. I cannot tell you how much I enjoyed the book and uh, talking to you today. Um, congratulations on it. it it's do, doing quite well already. Um, and uh, all the best. I appreciate your time today. 
Well, thanks very much, and I'm glad you enjoyed it because, uh, you know, i got to tell you, I knew that because I've been on TV for so long that, uh, you know, I could bang out a book. Mm -hmm. But I do read memoirs, and I do read autobiographies, and I, I can tell the difference between an autobiography or a memoir that's just being hammered out in a very quick fashion or one that people have actually worked on and uh, I certainly want it to be considered to be in the in the latter category and I'm pretty proud of it by the way before I let you go um, who decided on the the picture on the front cover Uh, well Gerald that was Gerald's suggestion but the picture on the front cover of course it's it's the very first play that we ever did Mm. Uh, that was the image uh, that was used in all the posters and all the promotion right across the country. So, and then you know, as my eight, as my eight by ten for a little while. So it was actually the first kind of headshot I ever had, and I was so, you know, we went with it, and uh, we wanted to indicate that it wasn't uh, that it was a memoir about it, you know me as a young person. A substantial amount of it was, whereas if a picture of me like that's on the back flap with gray hair. Yeah. That wouldn't necessarily sell it. And I was kind of inspired by Patti Smith's book. Patti Smith wrote a book about her time with Robert Mapplethorpe. And uh, when just they kids, were yeah. just kids. And the photograph on the cover uh, is the two of them together in a, uh, in a photo booth. Mm-hmm. And they're just young and good looking. And, and uh, I just, and black and white. And I just really, I found that cover captivating, especially seeing as, you know, one of the people in that cover is you know one of the most famous photographers of all time, and he took an awful lot of selfies of the two of them together. But they went with a, a photo booth photo, yeah. so that was kind of in my mind too. I thought I thought it looked classy, yeah. black and white. It, it does, and it, it, it's a it's a captivating photo. Um, thank you so much for your time today, Rick. Thank you anytime. The website for more is rickmercer.com. The book is called Talking to Canadians. It's published by Doubleday. Its author Rick Mercer joined me on the line from Toronto, in Vancouver. I'm Joseph Plato.